<laughs> so, um, Jim, um, you probably have the more um, kind of uh, more aggressive view on inflation of what I'm hearing around this, the table here. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit of how, how you get there, what you're thinking about inflation, and um, why you don't think deflation's on the horizon. So let me start with two things from what I've heard, first of all. I agree with Rosie that the response rate to surveys, first of all, a lot of the economy that we measure is measured from surveys, whether it's the payroll survey or it's a survey of purchasing managers. Our opinions about politicians come from surveys. And the response rate to surveys is collapsing. Really no, one, no one answers these surveys. My theory on it is not unique is it's because we have social media. We get to vomit our opinion all over social media. So when Gallup calls me or the BLS calls me, I don't get all excited. Somebody wants to know what I think. Doesn't I it just, show up as spam on your phone anyway? Yeah, Isn't that what part yeah of it shows up as spam anyway because I've, I've already done it on yeah. Twitter or something like that. Um, the payroll survey, the establishment survey of businesses was 49.4%, which equaled the 33-year low in December. So that means that the BLS has to guess what the other 50.6 was. And over the next two months, they go back to these people and they say, please, please, please answer the survey. Mm -hmm. And they try and get it up at the 80%. And then we'll see what the difference is between their guess and what they get resulted in. And that's why you see all these revisions going lower because they're overly optimistic on their guess. You know, and they've got a bigger pie that they have to guess on. And that's why we've seen it. Now, what's happening there, I'll give you one other statistic, too. So the conference board puts out the your uh, uh, leading economic indicators index. It's 10 indicators that they've put together in a model and that they think tells us where the economy is going to go. They um, put, you know, used from 1960 to 2020 as their period that they've put this together. Uh, and what we've seen in the last two years is we've seen 20 consecutive months of this indicator declining. In history, the longest we've ever seen it go without us being in a recession was nine months by January of 2008. And the average is six is when we're in a recession. So this model's already completely wrong. Can the I recession just, can I one second? Yeah. Because I interviewed Dana Peterson recently. She's the chief economist at the conference board. And she admitted on air that, that there's faults with it. I was shocked that she would admit it. I said a lot of people are pushing back, and she, she admitted. So right. I wouldn't be surprised if they have to go back and retool that. But that's, you know, uh, there's a UK statistician, um, George Box, who famously said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And so... It's kind of useful that this thing has been wrong because it gets to the second point I want to bring up. Every so often we have an economic cycle and it changes things. 2008, 2001, 9-11, um, the 80-7 crash. And I would argue the bigger one of all of those was 2020. That coming out of 2020, a lot of things changed. And I would argue maybe permanently or at least for the rest of our life, um, and by the way, change does not mean dystopian. It means different. The biggest example is remote work. Remote work has changed the culture of our country, good or bad, depending on which, where, where, what, what chair you sit in. 
And because of that, I think that we've got these fundamental misreads of the economy. I think that on balance, the way that I've been viewing it is the workforce has a fundamentally different view about work. They're not so stressed about it anymore. I have a job. I get a paycheck. And as long as it keeps coming in, I spend. And that's what we've been seeing. What if I lose my job? Eh, I'll find another one. Then, and so because of that, you started to see some changes in behavior. Prior, prior to 2020, when the stock market rallied big and your Zillow estimate of your house went up, you would look at it and go, oh, I have more net worth. I have higher savings. What are you going to do with it? Feel better. That's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to feel better. I got more savings. I got a, a bigger cushion in case of a downfall. Then in 2021 and 2020, when we were getting money in from the government, what did we do with it? Meme stocks, Dave Portnoy's picking letters out of a Scrabble bag to try and figure out what he's going to invest it in. We're going to go to the Bahamas. We're going to go to Florida because it's open. We're going to spend it. And so now all of a sudden, we're a lot more aggressive with that money. So when I see my brokerage statement come in and it's up big, I turn to my spouse and say, let's go to the Bahamas. I don't say, hey, we've got a little more of a cushion in case things go bad. So the attitude has changed. Now, maybe that attitude has changed because they mailed me money and they'll mail me money again on the next downturn. But whatever, I think that that attitude has changed. And if that attitude is leading towards more spending, that's more demand and what I'm concerned about is that the inflation rate is going to stay, and I'm careful on this word, sticky. Sticky means 3%, 4%. Sticky does not mean 8 or 10 or Zimbabwe. Uh, it just means it's going to be a little bit higher. If it stays sticky, that's going to frustrate the idea that the Fed could pivot, they could cut rates, everything will be okay, and that we're going to start to see... Um, I think a disappointment come in with the data in 2024 in that it won't show that last mile that we like to talk about with inflation going all the way down to 2%, allowing people to have these views. We might be faced with either a stagflationary environment where the economy weakens, but the inflation rate doesn't, or a little bit like last year, because remember a year ago, the, the consensus was recession. Now the consensus is soft landing that we wind up uh, upside surprising again with, with the economy. So I started with the premise, things changed in 2020. Remote work is probably the most visible one. Deglobalization is definitely accelerated. It, was exi it existed before. Uh, Google is making the Pixel phone in India. Um, uh, Apple wants to move the iPhone um, assembly to India. They want to get away from China. You know, uh, Taiwan Semi's talking about potentially building fab plants in Arizona and Ohio. Uh, they want to try and bring stuff back here. It's more expensive. Why didn't they do it before? Because the, the pursuit of globalization was find the cheapest place in the world to do it. But now we're either factoring in political risk or um, some other kind of risk, and we're saying it's worth it to spend more to do it in India or in the United States because it's a more stable place to do it, which also then corresponds with 
you're going to have a higher price for that product. So, uh, Charles, a, a quick comment on uh, what you were talking about with uh, student loans. Um, you are blessed if you get a degree from American University, and I'll put another filter on that. If you get a STEM degree from an American University, mm -hmm. a lot of these people that want relief either study poetry or gender studies, right, and right. they got $300,000 in debt for studying A lot of PhDs, that though, also are going to be getting, you know, yeah. get, you know. But, uh, Jeff, to your question about how do we fix this, let's look at Europe. Um, every time, France would be a good example. They've really, wherever we are with Social Security and unfunded liabilities, they're probably worse. And every time they try to, you know, increase the retirement age, reduce the benefits, they get the college kids basically rioting in, in, the, streets. in, in the streets. In you're size. 20, you're 22 years old, and you're worried that we're going to change the retirement age from 67 to 69, and you go crazy on it. But there is a fix, and the fix was in the fall of 22. Liz Trust was the prime minister in the UK. She proposed what was called the mini budget. That's what they call it there, and it was we're going to we're going to <coughs> cut taxes, and we're going to increase spending, and we're going to have a bigger deficit. And Parliament looked at her. She's a Tory conservative, and Parliament said we're cool with this because the Tories were on board, and of course Labour. Left party is on board with this. But there was a constituency that wasn't in favor of this. And that constituency was the UK gilt market. <laughs> so in the space of a week, interest rates went up 100 basis points in the 30-year gilt. It not only killed the mini-budget because it became untenable to pass it with skyrocketing interest rates, it killed Liz Trust. She only lasted 49 days as the prime minister. Remember the meme of her and a head of lettuce? Which one <laughs> yeah. was going to... It was like half a Scaramucci or something like right, that. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and now she's... Now That's she's actually forever. seven Scaramucci's. <laughs> yeah, seven Scaramucci's. Yeah. And she is forever the answer to the trivia question, who was the prime minister when the queen died? Because it's the only thing that happened in her 49 days. Uh, and so... The way we're going to get to fixing Social Security, the way we're going to get to fixing the mentality of spending is the bond market is going to fix it. And that is we are going to take interest rates up and up and up. And you're going to say we can't afford it. And the bond market is going to say, yes, you can. You're going to stop spending. And that's how you're going to afford it because that's what they did in the UK. They, you, the, they said you are not going to be able to afford this budget with these higher interest rates. So therefore, you are not going to pass this budget. And so that's how we're going to have to get to it, is that wherever that breaking point is, if it's next week or it's 15 years from Thursday or anywhere in between, it's the bond market that's going to stop this. It's the Jim Carville argument that uh, the bond market can scare It's possible everybody. if it's allowed to be free market. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah but so, I'm, not, I'm not convinced it'll be allowed to be then free market. It'll, then we'll have inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Then we'll have inflation yeah. if we don't allow it to do it. It's always the solution is in the bond market, right? So, right. Okay. Jim? Um, feeding off of what you just said, uh, I had been an advocate that probably from mid-2000s until very recently that stock picking was a dead art form, just buy an index. And now I think in the post-2020 era, stock picking is coming back. And I think it's part of this idea that we are in a new cycle. We are in a transformative cycle with AI and everything else. It's no longer just buy the index or just not, not sell the index. Now, 
It appeared to work last year because seven stocks, which were 30% of the index, accounted for the vast majority of the gain in the market. But markets tend to be cyclical. There'll probably be a period where seven stocks will just destroy the index and you could have just gone back to Portnoy's Scrabble bag and been, you know, been better off than <laughs> one of those 493s um, along those lines. So I do think that the dispersion of returns is going to reach, is going to come from that. But after that, I want to, I want to focus on the bond market a little bit. Um, I've also been operating under the opinion that when the 10 year yield hit 50 basis points in August of 2020, that was the end of the 40 year bull market in bonds. We are now in a multi-year bear market in bonds. Well, the good news about that is that we've already had the most painful part of it, and it's done. Um, Ed, Ed McQuarrie, who's a professor at Santa Clara, has got bond returns back to the 1790s, and the total return from 2022 and 2023 was the worst since the Civil War. Yeah, the American Civil War. But that's behind us now. And as Jim Grant likes to say, that he runs the newsletter Grant's Interest Rate Observer, it's nice to have an interest rate to observe again, because now that we actually have a yield, there's a yield to be managed, and bonds are no longer about capital gains anymore. And so even though I, I say it's a bear market, I do think, though, that there is still a lot of opportunities within a rising rate environment because there is a big hefty yield um, in the market. So I think rates are going to go higher this year. I wouldn't be surprised, in fact, I'm forecasting that the 5% in October was not the peak for this cycle. But it's always been the case with rates. It all depends on why they're going to go higher. If they're going higher because economic strength or the economy is going to be trend growth and maybe a little bit better, throw in a little bit of 3% inflation, that's not so bad. You know, as opposed to they're going higher from what I said in the previous section about uh, the UK that we're putting our foot down and we're trying to kill your budget. That's not a good reason for them to go higher. So in and of themselves, rates going up or rates going down doesn't imply a good or bad scenario. It depends on why. And my scenario is a little bit more optimistic that the economy is going to hold in there a trend, maybe a little bit above trend. Now, things can happen that can change that equation. And I'll adjust accordingly. But I, I think that you could see um, rates go up. The dollar, I think the dollar, uh, two things about the dollar. One, last year was a big story about, um, you know, the end of the dollar as a reserve currency. And that was a little bit premature. Uh, to, to paraphrase, you know, Winston Churchill, the dollar is the worst reserve currency ever designed, except for all of the other alternatives. Give me an alternative to the dollar. And then we'll talk about it ending its dominance as a reserve currency. Well, we're all going to rush into the euro. We're going to rush into the pound. We're going to rush into the Chinese yuan. They don't even rule a law yet. And they're not even completely convertible. Uh, we're not going to rush into Bitcoin. Maybe, maybe in 15 years, if they fix a lot of problems with it, that might be an alternative. But it isn't an alternative today. Um, so the dollar will continue to remain its reserve currency status. So in the higher rate environment, that should probably be somewhat constructive um, for the dollar. And then finally, uh, you know, to throw in with um, uh, 
the commodities markets, uh, if my scenario of, of the economy being okay. Uh, the other story that we had last year I, was everybody, and I'll use some technical language, everybody crapped all over the Chinese uh, economy for good reason. It was really poor. It was really poor, but I think it might be bombed out. Um, I'm not going to recommend Chinese stocks because there's a lot of issues with Chinese stocks. Again, rule of law and a lot of other things you have to deal with. But if the Chinese economy was to get some kind of a recovery, I'm not saying it's going to get better. It's just not going to, it's going to be, it's going to be better than it was, but maybe not a boom. That should produce a lot of demand. China is the uh, manufacturer of the world. They suck in raw materials and they push out finished goods. And one of the biggest problems we've had was they were sucking in raw materials and pushing out finished goods, everybody but themselves, because their own economy was not doing so great. If their economy does better, then I could definitely see maybe um, some kind of a bottom and a, and a turn higher um, in commodity markets. Okay, Jim? Short tips? I'll go with zero to five years. Short tips. as in duration? Or yeah, short as in duration, okay. not short yeah, tips, okay. but short as a duration, zero to five year maturity tips. Um, I'm gonna insulate myself from the duration on, on movements of interest rates. And um, they've got a yield somewhere in the mid fours when you add in the current inflation rate. They get paid at CPI. They don't get paid MPCE. So you've got that benefit going for you as well, too. So I uh, and they're also if you look at the ETFs in the short tips place space, there's 14,000 ETFs. Sort them by the biggest inflow, SPY. Um, TLT was number three, by the way. Uh, and then down at the bottom. It's interesting that what you have at the very bottom, biggest outflows, actually have to be ESG, is because that's all everybody hates, it, and short tips. <laughs> short tips have been bombed out. Everybody everybody hates them right now. Do you buy an ESG too? Uh, no, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm staying away from the ESG one. But, I mean, that's how hated they are. That's how hated they are. They're down with the ESG um, as well. So I like the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a real yield. I'm going to get um, um, I'm going to get paid on the CPI index um, as well. CPI index on a year-over-year basis bottomed in June, three percent. It's three point four right now. And if you were to look at the base effect for CPI, um, you've got a, a hurdle coming up here from June of last uh, from January of last year, 0.5. So you're going to drop 0.5. But then after that, the hurdles start going back down to 0.2.1. It becomes very easy to kind of beat that hurdle. Um, as well. So I'll take the mid fours yield on that. I'll get paid on the CPI without um, having to worry whether or not rates are going to go up or down. 